Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Boom Talk. Today, teaching myself to make a homemade blasting cap. If this works, it'll be step one making our own improvised explosive. That's from the trailer for the acclaimed new eco-thriller How to Blow Up a Pipeline, a bit of agitprop that had me jotting down titles like Reservoir Dogs in my notes. Yeah, I I do remember Mr. Pink being quite the environmentalist. (laughs) We've got a review of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and our Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon continues with something from Rainer Werner Fassbender. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We've been in a prolonged state of madness low these last eight weeks, Josh, but that is finally coming to an end as we crown the ninth annual Film Spotting Madness champion. We are going to get our listeners' definitive pick for the best film of the 1960s. Can you hardly wait? I'm excited. I had the break, a little relief from the madness last week. So, yes, ready to jump back in and just happy to know that. This has been settled once and for all. There is Mm -hmm. a single best film of the 60s. Listeners chose it. Yep. We will find out what it is, and it will not have to be discussed again. We'll all know it going forward. There you go. All that madness talk, including the winner of our Madness Bracket Contest later in the show, along with the third film and our Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon. We finally crossed Rainer Werner Fassbender's Ali Fear Eats the Soul off of our list no longer have to carry around the shame and embarrassment, Josh. Yeah, it feels good. My first Fassbender, so that mm. feels really good. I can at least say, yeah, I've seen one of them. I've at least seen one. I don't want to divulge too much, but for me, we might be three for three in Masterpieces in this marathon. Go in Masterpiece, huh? Okay. Yep. Can't wait to hear it. We do want to give you a brief reminder about helping us to reach new listeners by leaving us a rating and a positive review on the podcast app of your choice. We got some good ones in recently, so we want to thank Old Marathon Man. Old Marathon Man said this, Film Spotting helped this runner get through 5,000 miles of marathon training and expanded my knowledge of film to boot. Very impressive there. Runner's World. I think I've said this before over the course of this show's history. Where are you with your presenting sponsorship? No kidding. Jeff Machoda Makoda also gave us a review, as did Jablet 2003 
and wristband in Canada who shared this. My cinephile son introduced me to film spotting in 2019, and I have been a steady listener ever since. I love that it's working the reverse direction in this case. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we hear about listeners indoctrinating their children. This is going the other way. One more review that came in recently. We want to thank Cueballer, who said, and I think this is positive. I think it is. Bougie (laughs) film lover's choice. Seven years of quality, enjoyment, and counting. Um, Yeah, I don't know how the kids are using bougie these days, but let's say that that's a compliment. Thank you to all those folks who left some kind words for us on Apple Podcasts this past week. Please do share your rating or your review, whether it is on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, how to blow up a pipeline. We have to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big. Michael, what do you think the odds are we blow ourselves up? I don't really care. We could blow the pipe at the hilltop, keep the oil from leaking. You're not actually thinking. I'm not thinking about it. I'm doing it. What if y'all do structural damage? Structural damage is kind of the point. This is destruction of federal property. Terrorism. American Empire calls us terrorists, then we're doing something right. How to Blow Up a Pipeline's official plot summary labels its tale of environmental activism part high-stakes heist and part radical exploration of the climate crisis. The radicalism starts with its source material, Andreas Malm's nonfiction book of the same provocative name, which I saw described in one piece as an ecotage manifesto. But what makes Pipeline truly radical might be that high-stakes heist element. When done well, there are few genres that rouse an audience more than the heist thriller. And Pipeline engages in direct dialogue with some of the all-time greats. Next picture show hosts, take note. Your work for an upcoming pairing is about to be done. Thanks to a feature that director Daniel Goldhaber, whose breakout was the 2018 horror thriller Cam, did for Oscars.org's A-Frame. Josh, I know it's early in the morning as we're recording, but are you ready to play five genre movies that directly inspired how to blow up a pipeline? Do I have to guess or are you going to give them to me? Oh, no, you're going to have to guess. Um, okay. <laughs> so you're not ready. I'm not ready. It's way too early well, for this. That's part of the. I only had one film it jotted down in my notes for how to blow up a pipeline. So, yeah, I have not played this game yet, nor read that piece. But go ahead. Title number one. Goldhaber astutely notes that if you're working within any genre space where staging and efficiency are paramount, you should be thinking about this filmmaker. And Pipeline's large ensemble heist approach owes a debt to this movie, minus the huge stars and clever quips. Name the director and the film. Oh, gosh. This is not going to go well. <laughs> huge stars, huge clever, stars. Quips, clever uh, quips, Ocean's Eleven? Ocean's Eleven. Okay. And that filmmaker, of course, Steven Soderbergh. Though, Pipeline's crew, based solely on the numbers anyway, is more Ocean's 8 than 11. Coincidentally, as we are also talking about a Fassbender film later in this episode, Goldhaber says, if you're working quickly like we were, you're automatically thinking about Soderbergh and Rainer Werner Fassbender. That's just the nature of the beast. And How to Blow Up a Pipeline definitely has more Soderbergh in it. My next film will have more of Fassbender's influence, hopefully. Hmm. Title number two. Like Pipeline, this film's title 
tells you exactly what you are going to see. It too unfolds as a procedural. I do have a hint for you if you need it. Yeah, give me the hint. It was my choice for best picture in a film spotting marathon. Best picture in a film spotting marathon. Procedural. Tells you what it's doing in its title. Yes. I mean, I haven't even showered yet, Adam, (laughs) nor had my tea. Okay. Okay. I'm struggling. I will give you A Man Escaped from Robert Brisson. Okay. So he's comparing his film to A Man Escaped. He is saying that A Man Escaped is among the five films that directly influenced him. Okay. Man, this is one way to market your movie. Just (laughs) (laughs) Number three, ensemble and heist certainly apply. You're doing so well, Josh. Yeah, this is, I'm having a blast. (laughs) But Goldhaber's thievery here was all about structure and the movie's nonlinear approach. You really should be able to get this one. Okay. It, that's my clue. A yeah, nonlinear it, film. Nonlinear film heist. <laughs> that's a heist. Ensemble. Oh, and it maybe has already been mentioned in this show already. Okay, so that's Reservoir Dogs. Okay. That's Reservoir Dogs. Goldhaber admits it was very important to him growing up, despite it not being really about anything. In Pipeline, we see characters in action and then flash back to their activist origin story, the circumstances that brought them to the team, the same way Reservoir Dogs shows us how its colorful criminals join up with Joe Cabot. We saw taking the pop cultural objectness of Reservoir Dogs and applying it to the subject matter of how to blow up a pipeline as part of the actual subversive provocation of the film, according to Goldhaber. Okay, you got that one, but that was a bit of a cheat. Only two more, Josh. Oh, gosh. Pipeline referenced this movie for guidance on how to shoot and cover process, especially when approaching the bomb building scenes. And here's the hint. It's unusual synth-driven score was one we all were thinking about while making Pipeline. He says, we, here's another hint, because I know you need it. We talked about this film fairly recently. I think I got this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The synth, the synth and yep. the process, those two words bring to mind uh, Thief. Yes. Michael Mann's great film Thief starring James Caan. Number five. We're finally at the end. This procedural offers the substance and revolutionary spirit Reservoir Dogs lacks. It's a film that understands, Goldhaber says, the political value of not only property destruction and sabotage, but also the value of showing it. We were looking at it to understand its legacy and the kind of film that we were making. It's another film we've discussed on Film Spotting. Property destruction, procedural ensemble. This is what I have to go. Revolutionary with. spirit. Oh, revolutionary spirit. <sighs> no, I don't got I don't got it. The Battle of Algiers. Holy Josh, cow, man. He's just you, he's just naming maybe, a, a lot of the big ones, huh? You maybe did an awful job coming up with the titles, but now that you know them, you can't quibble with Goldhaber's formidable list of inspirations. But what about his movie? Does How to Blow Up a Pipeline effectively harness those influences or diverge from them in radical enough ways that you can easily imagine a young filmmaker of the future logging it among his or her greatest influences? If so, what might this future filmmaker be wise to steal from it? Of course, the more incendiary set of questions is whether how to blow up a pipeline is effective and radical enough that you can easily imagine a future 
eco-terrorist, a term the film's characters embrace, logging it among his or her greatest influences? And if so, what do you think they're likely to steal from it? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the scary things about the movie in a way is that it implies all that stuff's out there. Like someone mm-hmm. interested in doing this is not going to watch this movie <laughs> for instruction, right? It's it's kind of uh, it's already available in other places online and so forth. Can I quibble with his citations? I mean, yeah, I, or, I or mean, his well, claims? No, I don't think you can because again, he's not he's not comparing his movie to those titles. I'm sorry if that wasn't clear. He's just saying these movies influence me. Okay. Okay. Sure. But um, man, those are the influences. A, a are few undeniable. of those are massive, massive titles. Um, yeah, but you can see what he drew inspiration from specifically yeah. in each of those cases. Yeah, I guess. I suppose that's that's correct. Did I get three of the five? How many did I get? I'm just curious about my score. I'm giving you zero. Well, that seems incorrect. <laughs> okay, you got. But I know how right. you do. I know how you do the um, yeah the scoring in the Josh versus Adam book. So <laughs> you got the actually right. that sounds perfectly correct. <laughs> and you got half a point for Reservoir Dogs, and you got half a point after hints for Ocean's Eleven. So oh, we're we're dividing we're dividing five. the points. I two see. Two out of five. <laughs> Great. Um, okay, where are we now? That 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 was a lot. Um, would a future filmmaker? I guess all this setup makes me want to know um, it places. I think that's why I'm reacting this way. It kind of places how to blow up a pipeline on fairly hallowed ground or in a hallowed space. And I know it's been very well received and I did enjoy the film. Um, We'll get into the details. I think it's a good movie, but is this one of your favorite of the years so far? Are, are you seeing it similarly in terms of what it accomplishes, what it in, its influence might be? I, I don't see it. No, I'm I'm trying to provoke you with a setup the same way this movie is trying to provoke us with its setup. Yeah, I see it more as a movie of its moment in interesting ways and one where I understand how it is galvanizing the audiences it has galvanized. Um And I think it's very clever in some of the ways it does that, some of the things you touched on there. Um, And yes, are drawn from those movies that have influenced it in ways I can see. Um, I don't know if it's going to have the sort of lasting power that the question suggests or some of those, not all of those titles, but some of those other titles um, would also suggest it might have. I think this is an intriguing, well-done film that to me is a little closed off um, because of its choice to maybe be more at its end a political film than a complicated, ambiguous. Maybe the way I could best make my point is to name here. I'll name one film, (laughs) the one movie I wrote down in my Mm -hmm. notes, and it was Kelly Reichert's Night Moves. And yes, maybe because Reichert is on our minds with your interview recently and showing up being, you know, a really strong film that I think we've all appreciated. So that was a movie for me that just brought a lot of artistically ambitious ambivalence to it that, um, and maybe this isn't fair, you know, um, that I didn't find in how to blow up a pipeline. Maybe I shouldn't been looking for it. The title, as you point out, tells us exactly what we're going to get. And that's what we see. And I do think Goldhaber finds ways um, in that narrative structure to complicate things interestingly and make the stories of this ensemble cast um, more compelling and more personal. So I appreciated all of that about the movie, but there was still by its end, 
you know, it's a little bit more of a manifesto, which is fine as a manifesto, um, as a work of art, you're going to wrestle with in ways that I like to wrestle with films that has the lasting influence of some of those other films, mm-hmm. Battle of Algiers, particularly, um, I didn't see in this movie. Yeah. We have touched on this before with these intros. We're trying to come up with clever ways to say, did you like the movie? And I want to know if you liked the movie so much, Josh, that you might even consider it to be a film that could one day have the stature of those films as they were direct influences on it. Probably not fair to Goldhaber or anyone associated with this film, because those are some pretty amazing titles. Your night moves comparison is one I had in mind as well. And I haven't seen night moves since we reviewed it here on the show. I did not have a chance. I'll admit to go back and look at my notes, but I also think that if I was coming to the defense of how to blow up a pipeline against night moves, I would say, Well, naturally, I think it's more of a thoughtful movie than this, which, as you say, is more directly a manifesto because it is, to use your word, ambivalent. It wants to show, Night Moves wants to show the potential consequences of vigilanteism, of eco-terrorism, no matter how righteously motivated. But that's kind of what we expect a movie to do. And it kind of ceases to be provocative because by the end, it puts the world back in order for us. It says, you can do this stuff, but here are those consequences. And Pipeline more or less refuses to put the world back in order, which is what good political propaganda should do. So on one hand, I can certainly defend the movie for its provocation, and yet I'll tell you, I am filled with as many contradictions in reaction to this movie as the movie itself is filled with. There is an undeniable propulsive energy to Pipeline, and it starts with that procedural aspect. We're not watching characters come to an epiphany and make a decision to act, and it all builds up to that. No, they've they've decided to act when we meet them, and the movie starts with this plan being put into motion. The question is how you feel about its rousing presentation upon reflection. And the the more I think about how to blow up a pipeline, the less good I feel about it. But I also think that discomfort is part of what, as I was alluding to, part of what Goldhaber wants us to feel. Yeah, this will be my last comment about Night Moves. It's just that I seem to have a very different experience with it than you did you know, I didn't feel like that movie put the world back together at all. And like I said, it's been a while. So, well, in case, you know, in comparison to the viewing experiences, like I I remember being deeply unsettled Hmm. about the story of night moves and what to even think about how to respond to climate crisis coming out of that film. Whereas coming out of how to blow up a pipeline, I did not feel as unsettled. I don't feel like I know exactly how we should you know, respond to these things or even how I feel about the choices these characters make. I don't mean that at all. I just mean like, I feel like, okay, I got what that movie wanted to say, how it wants us to feel coming out of it. So I felt much more subtle, but I do agree with you that, you know, this structure, it grabs you intensely. And Mm -hmm. then what Goldhaber does that is really smart, I think, is just as we start to get, or at least I started to get a little... You know, you could see a lot of tension is kind of being wrung by, is this thing on the screen going to blow up in the guy's face or the woman's face or whoever it might be? We get that a number of times. And I started to feel like, okay, 
we need something new here. The movie gives us something new and it starts to give us those flashbacks and it starts to give us what you were talking about, Adam, is yes, when we meet them, they're decisive, they're committed, they're all in, but we want to know why, right? And the movie withholds that just long enough and then starts to do the individual flashbacks to show us why, how did they get to this point? Now you could also say, and I did feel this a little bit, that as each individual person had, as they should, a unique story, it felt a little bit like checking boxes. Like, well, here's an environmental crisis for this character. Mm -hmm. Here's how this character was affected. And I believe all of those individual stories and that real people are suffering in that way. I just mean in narrative construction to bring them all together as a team, you know, felt a little movie-ish. But again, the performances Mm -hmm. across the board make that work because they are each so deeply lived in and richly presented and the anger that is the unifying force, right? That that's what brings this group together is that they have all come to a point of extreme anger Mm -hmm. and need to do something because they feel impotent in the face of having suffered traumatically because of the climate crisis and environmental damage. And so I did appreciate how the performances kind of made that conceit work Mm -hmm. and you could see the acting coming to meet the screenplay structure. Um, Meanwhile, maintaining the suspense all throughout, you know, it's also very smart about giving us a background story and then throwing us back in the preparations and a wrinkle or a challenge coming up. Um, And that was a nice balance for me, again, as I was getting a little tired of the, is this going to blow up or not? It got much more complicated and the personal stories became intertwined in ways. And the one performance, I mean, we could shout out all of them. I do think they're all strong. I really liked Forrest Goodluck. um, I did too. I think he's the standout. If you have to choose a standout as this teen, he's coming from a reservation in South Dakota. In his case, the oil fields have just taken over uh, up there. And we get glimpses, you know, you get the sense of um, a lack of jobs, Um, For him and the people who live there, people are coming from out of state to work and he has good luck just has this numb nihilism to him. He is he is like so beyond angry. It's almost like he can't feel anymore. And all he can all he wants to do is proceed with this project. I think he's the one who says right when they ask, what are the chances um, we're going to die or something like that? And he just says, I don't care. You know, that that's the point he's gotten to. Mm-hmm. But good luck delivers lines like that in a way that it, it doesn't feel like bravado at all. You really believe that that character is at that point. Yeah, that he has nothing to lose. And a lot of these characters don't. I agree. The performances are key here. I mentioned the contradictions and you are getting at some of them for me. This is a film that wants to provoke that I think really does want to excite its audience and get them to want to take action. But it also very clearly doesn't want to incite actual destruction or do anything dangerous. Okay. I appreciate that. I'm glad the filmmakers are responsible in that case, but that's the tension that is sort of at the core of this film is it's so procedural and it's so matter of fact that you almost feel like there's this illusion that you're watching actually how to blow up a pipeline. The movie really isn't giving you that. You start to glom onto the fact that it's not an instruction manual in that way. It's also a movie, though, that has these characters fighting for the future of humanity, but 
almost all of them, are really just very wounded, very angry people. As you said, they've suffered personal trauma. Yeah. And so they're really looking for an outlet for that frustration, something or some entity to take that pain out on, to get revenge, essentially. And so I think that undercuts the story a bit, but it's also a case when you say you mostly bought it, I mostly bought it too. And again, I mostly bought it because of the performances, but in the moment, I really bought it. And it's only as I reflect on those scenes that they all feel maybe a little bit too neat and it's a little flimsy. It is also, as we've said a few times, a procedural, and that suggests a certain detachment. There's a chronicling of action, of steps taken, but also wrapped in a heist thriller package, especially with the editing and the score. And that does give it a slicker, more entertaining sheen. There is no doubt that as you're watching this, you find yourself rooting for, inherently rooting for this plan to come off, no matter what you feel about what they're actually trying to do and the way they're going about it. And as slick as it is, I'll, of course, say it's not actually Reservoir Dogs. It's not trying to be Ocean's Eleven. I think you get that through the use of non-stars and the focus on the how-to aspect. It all suggests an authenticity, a sort of illusion of truth that then for me, Josh, was hard to reconcile with scenes and parts of the script that felt totally phony. There's a recruitment scene in a bookstore that... I found totally absurd. There are a few law enforcement scenes that I don't think are particularly effective down to one FBI officer who is wearing a blazer and talking in a way that made me feel like I was watching a high school production of Law and Order. Yeah, that comes out. That comes from a different movie. It feels it like I agree. That's exactly it, what it feels like. It punctuates the bubble mm -hmm. that the filmmakers have created. This intense, despite because it's taking place in the present time, right? The flashbacks we understand. These are flashbacks. You can open the world, but otherwise, we're in this tightly controlled world, a space even in yes. this area in Texas. And when we get to those law enforcement scenes, it kind of like opens the door a little bit too much. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, and and exactly as we've been saying. The pain of those flashbacks and the intensity of those flashbacks is another perhaps phony aspect of the movie for me, again, upon reflection, because it's amped up for maximum impact. It has to be. We're not going to stay in this flashback space very long. We have to keep it moving. We have to get back to what is essentially the heist here. You said it as well. The use of, I'll call them minor cliffhangers. <laughs> There's two of them that are there to raise the stakes and make us feel as if, oh my God, did that just happen? What are we going to come back to? And then it only actually reduces the stakes because it feels like a bit of a crutch. After two of them, it feels like it might be a bit of a crutch by the filmmakers to use that, to employ that technique. And the last thing I'll say about it in terms of where I started to feel that bubble, as you put it, being pierced, the nature of this plan and some of the things that come to light, that too feels very rushed and maybe a little bit too neat and contrived once you really start trying to unpack it. So I was really torn watching this film, getting swept up in it because the craft is so strong and effective 
And it's only when I was really thinking about it and dwelling on it, Josh, I started to started to see some of those elements that made me question whether my experience with it was, in fact, the right one. Yeah, it's a delicate thing with any sort of heist type movie where you want to be surprised and you want to be held in suspense, but you don't want to be manipulated, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I ever felt really manipulated watching How to Blow Up a Pipeline, but I think it's maybe closer to that end of the spectrum than the surprise that you don't see at all that came out of nowhere and you appreciate being surprised by it and you appreciate the suspense you were held within. I'm assuming, and I think you might have referenced it and we won't get into it, but you're putting the twist into this category that you kind of thought in retrospect, because at the time I was like, oh, this is pretty clever. And it's, again, kind of taking us in a little different direction as the flashbacks did earlier and offering something new. But yeah, maybe in retrospect, I might say it kind of falls in the category of the things you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that is. I didn't want to use the word twist necessarily because people may be thinking about it when they watch it, but there is certainly a revelation that, well, not changing the entire scope of the film and everything we saw that preceded it, it, it nevertheless adds a new wrinkle that I don't think the movie handles in a very careful way. That's or, fair. Or believable way. I will go back to my, my question here from the beginning that I don't really expect you to answer because I can't answer it. The one that I think you have to at least consider when you walk out of this film, which is, is this movie going to inspire for better or worse future activists, future eco-terrorists? And no matter how supportive you are of the cause, are you okay with that? We've thrown out a bunch of movies and titles, some by Goldhaber, some you thought of. You know, the two things I thought of watching it, one, I thought a little bit of Spike Lee's Inside Man, because obviously that's also a crime movie, a heist movie, but it's one of those films where you're sure these are the bad guys. They're bank robbers who are also taking innocent people hostage, except damn Clive Owen's character is really cool. And and wait, maybe they aren't actually the bad guys. Maybe they're really trying to expose something that's truly nefarious and and wicked. So you start to you start to catch on to that with Inside Man and there's a similar dynamic at play here even if again, I don't think the movies are overall very similar in their style or their approach to the material, but I really was thinking a lot about The Anarchist Cookbook which I think is by design, the 1971 book by William Powell that was incredibly controversial. And the movie that came out about it and its legacy in 2016, the documentary American Anarchist by Charlie Siskel that I talked about a little bit on the show. I interviewed Siskel about that book. It really wants to wrestle with that book and where the writer of it is now looking back 50 years, almost 50 years on material that he put together that truly was the how-to book, Josh. It really was an instruction manual on how to make and manufacture explosive devices and other types of weapons and how to make illicit drugs, including LSD. And as you can imagine, it upset a lot of people and caused a lot of moral hand-wringing, as it should. Again, this movie isn't quite going down that path, despite, despite its title. But I think one of the things the movie really does want to leave you thinking about is how much do you as a viewer 
regardless of how you feel about the cause itself, how much do you as a viewer want or need to see these characters get some kind of punishment? On what level are you are you also rooting for that as much as you're rooting for them to pull off what they're trying to pull off? Because you you need the movie to balance out the provocation. You need there to be some ambivalence. You need to understand that the movie isn't just saying unequivocally, we all should be employing these kind of tactics. Yeah. If you're asking, you know, is, is this movie dangerous or potentially Mm -hmm. dangerous? I think that's what you're circling around. That's what I'm circling around. Yeah. I I think, you know, for me, and maybe I'm naive on this point, I don't feel like it is because again, I think it's, you know, it's, on the other end of things, it's just communicating or showing stuff that's been happening or people are thinking about in other arenas. I don't know that we're in an age where a major release film, and this isn't major release. I don't know how wide it's going. You know, it's maybe like a mid-tier release is going to be provocative in that way. I think those things are happening on the internet. I think that they're happening in different venues. What I do think something like how to blow up a pipeline can be is galvanizing. And I think I used that word earlier. And I think particularly for younger moviegoers who will feel affirmed in how personally important this issue is. And this is something that I think is the greatest strength of the movie that I'm realizing, you know, being late forties, I understand climate crisis and environmental damage, even though I am hugely sympathetic to the concerns of this movie and the politics, if more conflicted about the practices, right? But as someone at my age, I experience it way differently than like our kids do, Adam, Mm -hmm. right? When they and their peers talk about this, this is like something that is immediately catastrophic because intensely personal and intensely personal because when they see those projections about you know scientists say this is going to happen by whatever 2030 2050 they can they can picture that right and i think this movie um recognizes that distress and is galvanizing in a way where someone could come out of it and be affirmed in their distress and moved to do something about it, if not exactly this, to do something. And I think in that way, how to blow up a pipeline um, can have a real effect on moviegoers. And I think that's distinct from it being dangerous or or showing people how to do this exact thing. Does that distinction mm-hmm. make sense? It does make sense. And I think that's all very rational and reasonable and well articulated but i'm sorry you're incorrect fox news said it is dangerous and that it's leftist hollywood propaganda so we will we will close the case and move on thanks for proving my point how to blow up a pipeline is currently playing in limited release if you see it and agree or disagree with us you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net i won't be satisfied unless this album is an accurate representation of where i am as a person and know how he gets when he makes records, whether or not he sees it at the time or not. Most people don't go to work with their wife. That's from the new doc, Jason Isbell, Running With Our Eyes Closed, which came to HBO Max last weekend. Isbell is a singer-songwriter with a devoted following. Adam, I know, I think I know three people I would count in that following. Not mm-hmm. to suggest, I know Isbell's very popular, um, but two of them are pastors, and then there's you. So I don't know if you can explain that to me. 
I don't know that I can explain it to you, but I do have a word in my notes that I plan to drop on you at some point that may circle back to this, Josh, and maybe it will all make sense. Okay. I'm intrigued. Running With Our Eyes Closed is directed by Sam Jones, who also made 2002's I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. That's about the beloved Chicago band Wilco. That film captured Wilco at a pivotal moment, not just in their professional career, but also as a functioning unit. This new doc is about the making of Isabel's 2020 album, Reunions. That was a collaboration with his band, The 400 Unit, and also, as you heard in that clip, with Isabel's wife, the musician Amanda Shires. Adam, you catch most of these music docs when they're out, so this is your area. Where would you place this one? Is it? They all seem to be generally worth your time. You come away having learned something, appreciated something about the artist more often than not, but there are, as we know, some great, great all-time music docs. So where would you kind of place this one? Yeah, I I will be honest. I can't give you a great answer to that question because I haven't spent any time thinking about my pantheon, if you will, of music documentaries. I know that I have seen a fair amount in recent years. You know, Netflix and other groups are cranking these things out. And they feel a little perfunctory. They feel like a book review. They feel like, hey, we're I guess that's give what you... I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, is this one more than that, or would you oh, put it in that it's category? So much, it's so much more than that. Okay, this is this is one of the really good ones, if not one of the all time great ones. I've watched it twice already, and a big chunk of it, of course, is the subject. And that's that's not to say you have to be a fan of Visible's music in order to enjoy the film. I'll provide some more on that here in a second, but it really comes down to the fact that Jason Isbell is a documentarian's dream. Isbell may be the only artist alive who you believe wholeheartedly when he says, as he does here, he has no interest in controlling his image. And this film is intimate and honest and soul-searching in all the ways a portrait of Isbell and his artistic process could only be. It's, it's what we absolutely expect of this artist, and it's not just about the recording process or about his writing and recording process. It's not even just about marriage, which is maybe what the movie is more fundamentally about. It's mm. even more about marriage and the process of marriage than it is about the process of making music, but it has these deep roots in topics that are really hard to explore and talk about. And there's a word that comes up over and over again in this movie. And I don't think it's by accident. And that word is control. You think about Isbel in relation to that word, being in control of your marriage, of your music, of your addiction, in the case of Isbel, your choices. And then this album comes out during covid He's already recording it in 2019. It's all pre-COVID, and he's making what he thinks is the most important album of his life. Can't wait to share it with people. Can't wait to go on the road and share it with people. And COVID hits. Well, what made us all feel collectively less in control than COVID? And I think Sam Jones here, who did make that Wilco doc, which is another one of the great ones, I think he really gracefully explores this idea of control and how you deal with not being in control throughout the entire thing. I said that it's a film I hope people will seek out, whether they already like his music or maybe they don't like his music. Maybe they've never even heard it. 
I hope they seek it out because it's this honest portrait. And it's a movie that goes to some really painful places and it explores something really honest and authentic. I don't think we get enough of that, especially in these types of documentaries. And at 98 minutes, it's it's lean. But as I'm suggesting, it packs a real emotional punch, just like Isbell's best songs, which might be, you know, three minutes to to four minutes, but they really do hit you. And here's the word that I'll throw out that I was referencing earlier. For you, Josh, movies may in fact be prayers, but I think Jason Isbell's songs are hymns. And if you're watching this film and coming to it with no sense of his songwriting or relationship to it, I think if you watch him play and talk about songs like Cover Me Up and Maybe It's Time, which was used in A Star Is Born, I don't know how you couldn't watch them and think these these are timeless. They have a timelessness to them that makes them feel like you can revisit them and reinterpret them for all time. And people already have with a song like Cover Me Up. It's a song that is constantly being covered. That's because it's a great song. But I also think at its core, it's it's what it elicits from people. It's the reaction it gets from people. And there's a certain simplicity. I don't want to suggest he isn't a great musician or that the songwriting isn't complex, but there is to these songs in particular, something like Cover Me Up, Maybe It's Time. There's a sense of simplicity about them that's maybe a little bit of an illusion because they really are doing something that's so profound. A heart on the run Keeps a hand on the gun You can't trust anyone I was so sure What I needed was more Tried to shoot out the sun Days when we The hymn compares and tracks with with what I've heard when others talk about his music. I think it's also the other, some of the other things we were talking about, the honesty and the vulnerability being mm-hmm. right there. And just it seems it seems like especially when he references, you know, past addiction and so forth is just kind of living how to live in brokenness. Um, mm-hmm. And again, being honest and vulnerable about that, too, in his music. Mm-hmm. Running With Our Eyes Closed is currently on HBO Max, I hope people will seek it out. Next week for us, Josh, I read you the riot act for spending above our credit limit at your Boulder, Colorado film spotting meetup last time. How are things looking this time? (laughs) Well, I think um, we should have about 10, 11 folks so far have said they're going to be there. So hopefully a few more will join. The real problem is Debbie's going to be there. You know, she's flying out towards the end of the conference and I don't know what that's going to do to the tab. So, so we'll see. <laughs> I always love it when you start a sentence with the real problem is my wife. coming." <laughs> problem for you. I mean, it's great for me. The bill yeah. might be an issue. Also next week, one of those shows where we consider a notable actor and their career. The subject is Joaquin Phoenix. He of course is the star of the new Ari Aster film. Bo is afraid that comes to theaters on the 21st. He's appeared in many, many good films and given many, many good performances. He was also in Joker. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Joker, which will be 
spoiler alert, on my top five list. And, you know, just as Joker remains on my top ten films of that year list. So I do like my Joker. Well, a movie that was among my top ten films of its year, a movie and performance I like considerably more than Joker, Spike Jonze's Her turns ten this year. And I don't know if you've noticed, artificial intelligence seems to be having a bit of a moment. I don't know that either of us are equipped to talk about that moment, but we're going to try to put her in some kind of perspective 10 years later next week. Well, this is where we, I know we've joked about this and, and referenced it, but this is where we actually use chat GPT I know. to at least write the setup. I know. I already told Sam if not, it had to be done. <laughs> if not the whole review. I mean, I think you and I could sit this yeah, one out and we just let chat GPT take this one over. It, it's fitting. It's not, you know, we're not dodging anything here. I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I'm with you. Speaking of Astor's Bo is Afraid, he is the subject of our first post-madness film spotting poll we are asking what is your favorite Ari Aster film he's only made two it's a 50-50 choice though of course this being a patented deeply flawed film spotting poll question we've tried to complicate it you can either choose 2018's Hereditary or 2019's Midsommar we are also giving the Aster critics out there I'm raising my hand Josh you may Uh be able to see we're giving you the option not a fan yeah, this, this is just for you. I mean, I know there are some people who are conflicted about his films, but most uh-huh. people are excited about Ari Aster's work. So this is a little out for Adam. Um, for me, it's still a, a pretty easy, even though I've liked both films, it's a pretty easy choice here. It's it's hereditary. Um, Midsommar, I, I mean, I'm just still trying to wrap my mind around that one. Maybe a revisit would bump it ahead of hereditary. But yeah, for me, it's hereditary. Do you have one? You like the least? Can you reverse engineer this or are you just going straight out not a fan? I am, of course, voting not a fan, but I voted in Sam's Twitter version of this question, which did not include the not a fan option. I will say that I had to pick one because I wanted to see the results more than anything, but I had to make a choice and I made my choice and I said hereditary because I at least find that film overall not quite as grueling to sit through as I do Midsommar, which now that I think about it might be a little ironic. It's certainly sleeker. It's shorter, but I don't know that it's actually less oppressive than a film like Midsommar, which at least has some real moments of dark humor and that Swedish countryside, Josh, is, yeah. is gorgeous. Yeah, right? I feel like so you get outside a little more in Midsommar. You get outside so <laughs> a little bit more. It at least has that going for it. But yeah, I'm not a huge fan. So, of course, I am extra curious to see what my reaction is going to be to Bo is Afraid. That is, if I don't somehow come down with a <clears throat> a cough uh-huh. before, before that episode. I mean, we're looking at the end of the month after this Joaquin Phoenix preamble, the prologue, if you will. And we're going to talk about Bo is Afraid and Tarkovsky's Mirror. I just, I, I, I'm not sure, Josh. I may be, I may be coming down with something. I I might have to put Michael Phillips on standby. Noted. (laughs) You can vote now in our poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We will share the results in a couple of weeks. Noted Cone Brothers fans that we are, we did want to mention the passing of character actor Michael Lerner. He was 82 years old best known and Oscar nominated for his turn as studio head Jack Lipnick in the Coen brothers, Barton Fink. Barring a preference, we're going to put you to work on a wrestling picture, Wallace Beery. 
I say this because they tell me you know the poetry of the street, so that would rule out Westons, pirate pictures, screwball, Bible, Roman. Look, I'm not one of those guys that thinks poetic. It's got to be fruity. We're together on that, aren't we? I mean, I'm from New York myself. Where? Minsk, if you want to go all the way back. Which we won't, if you don't mind, and I ain't asking. I mean, I can, I can hear him uh-huh. right now from that those sequences in Barton Fink, and it makes me think, you know, we should have done in honor of Lerner, and maybe we'll get to this. I don't think we've ever done like a Coen Brothers scene stealers top five. No, it's because a good one. he would almost every one of their movies has somebody right yes. who's like Lerner in Barton Fink, just comes in for a scene or two, absolutely kills. We just talked about. Uh, the Big Lebowski, and it would have to be John Turturro there, even though I don't think we referenced his Jesus, his bowler. Oh, we um, did. In our review, did we? Okay, good, because yeah. he deserves it. He'd be a scene stealer, for example. But yeah, Lerner absolutely is one of those in Barton Fink. Lerner's got credits going back to the late 60s. He was also in The Cones, A Serious Man. I do remember him very fondly as Arnold Rothstein and John Sayles' Eight Men Out, the guy who fixed or financed the fixing of the White Sox versus Reds World Series. He's Mayor Ebert in 1998's Godzilla, that character name, not an accident. He was also in X-Men Days of Future Past, and he's big, fat Bernie Gale in the 1998 hidden gem Safe Men. You know that Sam provided these notes because that movie truly is for him a hidden gem and it is a good movie it's a fun film sam rockwell steve zahn mark ruffalo peter dinklage and paul giamatti i mean that is a murderer's row including michael lerner r.i.p to a really great character actor well on the next picture show our sister podcast adam they haven't gotten to your how to blow up a pipeline pairing with one of those titles yet instead right now They're doing a Stranger Flings pairing. So this is looking at the new Rye Lane from director Rain Allen Miller alongside one of the greats, Before Sunrise, from Richard Linklater. So comparing two movie romances there at the next picture show, your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. This is blasphemy. This is madness! This is absolute madness. This is is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! It's always a little sad when we put away the film spotting madness bumper for another year, Josh, but it is time to close this out. It's time to announce the winner of our best of the 60s tournament. We started the process last year with over 100 shortlisted titles. We got that down to 90 or so for the play-in round, and then we kicked things off in early March with the 64 film bracket. It all culminated last week with two titles. Well, four if you include the third-place matchup, but the championship is being decided between these two films, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Before, we're going to hold you in suspense a little bit, before we announce the winner of that final matchup, we wanted to share this note we got from Nick in Los Angeles that gets to the essence of why we actually embark 
on all of this insanity every year. Here's Nick. This was my fifth film spotting madness to experience in real time, and the 1960s has been my least watched decade of any tournament so far. I usually start my madness homework around January 1, and when I cloned your letterboxed shortlist of the top 98 films, I clocked in at a measly 16%, which for me included many of the top seeds and a few others. I'm happy to say that as of last week, I'm sitting at a much more respectable 35% of that initial 98 film shortlist. Thanks to your little hijinks, I was able to remedy such blind spots as, and this is really a killer lineup, Adam. I mean, mm -hmm. you're so right. I love seeing this, that this prompted people to watch movies like The Apartment, Lawrence of Arabia, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Cleo from 5 to 7, High and Low, which Nick notes is a new favorite of his, The Wild Bunch, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and... If we can believe it, Nick says this was the first time he watched Psycho. He continues, I can't think of a more ringing endorsement of madness than getting to experience so many great films just before they all get thrown into the incinerator. Thanks for the fun, madness-wise. Yeah, really appreciate that note, Nick. It is why we do it. And I'm not saying this in any way to diminish Nick or make him feel bad about his mere 16% when he started, but I don't know that a lot of listeners who shared feedback with us about their madness journey through these titles started quite that low. I saw people who were more in the maybe 40%, 50-60 and had some homework to do, and a lot of them, Josh, got to 100 it was so rewarding to see so many people who got to 100% over the course of about a year. And that's why we provide those shortlisted titles a year in advance. Nick getting to 35%, honestly, is pretty remarkable. And knocking off all of those titles is really great. I'm jealous. I wish I was seeing all those movies again for the first time. And I'm sure some people are now thinking, okay, well, when are we going to get next year's shortlist? How soon can we start our homework? We think we know what we're doing for next year. Yes, best of the 1950s is on the table, but it's not definitive. We're going to discuss that with the Film Spotting Advisory Board at an upcoming meeting in May. And shortly after that, we should be able to start offering you some titles. We do have our top two seeds, 2001 versus Psycho, squaring off. Let's take a look at the path these films took on their way to the finals. 2001 knocked out Costa Gavras's Z, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, The Graduate in the Elite Eight, and then the final four, Billy Wilder's The Apartment went down. As for Psycho, in round one, it defeated the Maisels Brothers and Charlotte Zwerin's landmark documentary, Salesman. Round two, it took out Fellini's La Dolce Vita, then defeated Cool Hand Luke. After that, another Fellini. Sam notes here that uh, we didn't realize at the time while we were keeping track of this that Psycho knocked off not only La Dolce Vita, but also here Fellini's eight and a half. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna have to punish the selection committee for that. <laughs> and then in the final four, it did prevent this tournament from being Kubrick v. Kubrick by defeating Dr. Strangelove. So instead, it's Psycho v. 2001. Ofer Liebregal in Tel Aviv says, 2001 and Psycho, two movies which are both commercial and experimental, and they are both nearly perfect. Every repeated viewing of Psycho is fun, but every repeated viewing of 2001 feels like discovering a new art form. I'm not religious, but 2001 is a religious experience every time. Sounds like Ofer then is going with. 2001 for his pick and josh he wasn't alone this one wasn't very close 
63% of the voters went with Ofer. 2001 is our champion. That means Psycho, 37%. Closer than you thought, Adam? I think we both assumed 2001 would take it. Yeah. Is this closer about right where you thought it would fall? I think I would have predicted. It's hard now to suggest what I would have predicted when I've seen the results, but I think I would have been about in the 70-30 range. I thought 2001 would be pretty decisive. Yeah, I thought it would have been a stronger win, even though this is quite impressive. It is. 2001 A Space Odyssey, now part of the Distinguished Pantheon of Madness Champions. Listeners have helped us choose the best film of every decade from the 60s through the 2010s. You can check out all of those titles and more at filmspottingmadness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness. But oh, the madness isn't completely over. We do have a third place contest as well. And it's those two final four runners up, Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove going up against Wilder's The Apartment. Josh, this one is so close that we're going to call it live on air. I'm going to hit refresh Oh, One wow. last time. And we're going to see. We've got this from Josh Newby, who says, Kubrick is winning this whole competition, so I'll give it to the apartment. For me, heart and sincerity will always win out over a cerbic satire, no matter how brilliant. Man, I, I'm with Josh. I would go the same way. So I'm pulling for a last minute win here for the apartment. What do we got? I am hitting refresh. And the winner is by eight votes eight votes the apartment yes the apartment i love it takes down kubrick's dr strange that shocks but, me actually that really surprises me yeah i think josh wasn't alone in maybe wanting to go with the film that made them feel a little warmer but also not wanting to crown here for third place another kubrick film yeah, maybe this is where my my theory that I employ too early in my predictions, that people look at a filmmaker who has multiple titles and knocks one of those out because they don't want them to move on. I think maybe that only really applies for people when it gets down to this final four or so, and they see that name repeated. Um, and in this case, two Kubrick seemed like one too many. Still, we can't suggest Kubrick didn't almost take this and win both first and third place 50.34 percent of the vote is how it came out crazy for the apartment very very close before we go we do need to wrap up our madness bracket contest itself almost as much of a foregone conclusion as 2001 coming out on top since week two of the tourney one individual has led the 700 listeners who submitted brackets and that individual happens to be the founding father, a.k.a. the godfather of Film Spotting Madness listener, Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire. He won it all, Josh. He just grabbed this thing from the start, did not let go. No one could knock him off. What a run. Pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. And here's the best part. His prize, he gets to take part in our internal bracket contest just like he already he's, gets he's to already, every year. Yes, he's already beating all of us at that. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe he gets to submit two brackets Maybe. I, I, we'll have to think about this he clearly doesn't need the help but no that's not true mike you want it all and there was no inside job on this you really did the individual work on your own and it paid off and yes we will give you a film spotting prize pack we also had a film spotting family only bracket contest about 150 of our family members took part in that the winner of that contest another 
very, very long-time listener. How about Hollywood's own Brett Merriman? Take hey, Brett was in the lead, and then he fell back at one point, right? Yeah. So Yeah, I think so. Okay, so it was it was like you know at the Bulls games those donut races they put on the screen. Brett Brett was out way right. out front, yep. fell back, and then you just saw him come from behind and take it. Congratulations, Brett! He now has the opportunity to join us for a future bonus episode. If he doesn't oh, no. want to, he can he can just suggest a title that we have to talk about. But he's got the option to come on. He's been on the show before. I think he talked to us about heat. Many years ago, joined us for a few minutes to talk about that. He's not new to I don't know coming on film spotting, Josh. I've I forgot about this prize. I mean, I've I've hung out with Brett at meetups and and afterwards even. This is too much power for him to wield. <laughs> Maybe so. Finally, our internal bracket contest that is me, you, producer Sam, Mike, and last year's bracket winner, Brett Fisher in Portland, Oregon. Mike, of course, won this contest as well. But winning is irrelevant here. Mm. There is only a loser mm -hmm. of this bracket contest. Mm -hmm. Brett finished second behind Mike. I spent much of the tourney in last place, but ended up finishing third. Look at you. Sam in fourth. And Josh just behind Sam in fifth and last place. That's how it played out. Now, you sure you weren't giving me like half points for each of my correct predictions? Because I've heard that's a strategy uh -huh. you sometimes employ. Hey, Sam did the scoring, so take it up with him. Okay, then I believe it. I trust it, and I will. As punishment, watch Adam Sandler's Murder Mystery 2. I don't know when. Uh, I mean, I think in the past we, we technically have the you whole year. have the whole right? year. But I did look up, knowing where this was headed, I did look up the running time. It appears to be a sweet 90 minutes, something around there. I've got a few plane rides in my future, so I might try to get it to it sooner rather than later and report back, which I know you can't wait for. Mm -hmm. I can't wait. And I actually think you're a big two birds with one stone guy. I think you should swap in Murder Mystery 2 at Ebert Interruptus. <laughs> frame by frame I mean, analysis. Now you've seen as a previous loser of this contest you've seen yeah. murder mystery one just based on that do you think it holds the cinematic excellence to go under that sort of scrutiny multiple days of observation and close analysis well i don't necessarily think it does but we did get a very impassioned email from one kyle cliche in kitchener ontario Canada, i saw last that week, who said the sandler slander say that 10 times fast needs to stop and he provided his flawless ranking of all 64 adam sandler movies do you have a guess where murder mystery one comes in on kyle cliche's list not knowing kyle's taste but seeing that email and getting a hint that I do think he appreciates, you know, he's not just this Adam Sandler is only good when he's working with Paul Thomas no. Anderson or the Safdie brothers. Like Punch he's, Drunk Love is not number one. Right, right. I do remember gems. that he's, as I am, like I appreciate early Sandler, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore. That's good stuff. So I'm going to say two. for Kyle, <laughs> what's that? One, two, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore. Oh, that well, okay, that's it's, right. It's so for virtual, Kyle, I'm going to say Murder Mystery is it's a virtual um, in the 2001, first... 2001 versus Psycho. <laughs> Essentially, I, I'm going to say Kyle has it in, in the top third of his rankings. Yeah, not quite. He's actually got it exactly in the bottom 
third, oh. if my math is correct. Murder Mystery 1, oh boy. 41st out of 64, just ahead of Murder Mystery 2. It's also oh, no. just ahead of number 43, Paul Blart, Mall Cop. Well, now I'm less excited about Murder Mystery 2. And I also, you know, do you think, and I say this again, as a longtime Sandler fan, uh huh. do you think Kyle's serious? I spent a lot of time thinking about that, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it certainly started out as one of those emails we get from time to time, uh-huh. taking us to task appropriately for something. And then as I saw... He put in the work, though. the ranking and 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 all the work. I I don't know. I mean, he did say Godspeed and please allow yourselves to understand the beauty, humanity and joy of the Sandler cinematic universe only rivaled by the likes of Fellini, Scorsese, Godard and Tarkovsky. So you tell me if Kyle's serious or not. <laughs> Either way, we'll never thanks, know. Kyle, <laughs> we appreciate the feedback for complete madness details. Go to filmspottingmadness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness. The 10th anniversary of Madness will return in some form in 2024. So stay tuned for announcements about the subject of that tourney and its accompanying short list of titles. Again, filmspottingmadness.com. Thank you, everyone, for playing. Ah, dieser grässliche Regen. So, da sind wir. Das ist dein Haus? Ja. Sie können sich ja einen Moment unterstellen. Vielleicht hört es inzwischen auf. Sonst erkälten Sie sich noch und ich bin schuld. Was ist deine Arbeit? Wissen Sie, ich... Ja? Ich erzähle das nicht gern. Die Leute gucken einen immer so komisch an und... Ich nix komisch. We get back into our Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon with that clip. An early scene between Brigitta Mira's Emmy and El Hadi Ben Salem's Ali in Rainer Werner Fassbinder's Ali Fear Eats the Soul. Fassbinder's film came in at number 52 on the 2022 Sight and Sound list. It tied with Chantal Ackerman's News from Home and was right between Jane Campion's The Piano there at 50 and then five films tied at 54. Those included Billy Wilder's The Apartment, Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr., and Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Fear Eats the Soul was the only Fassbinder film to make the sight and sound list, but the director has long been a marathon candidate of ours. Fassbinder died in 82 at the young age of 37, but in his short career, he made over 40 feature films along with shorts, TV programs, and stage plays. Fear Eats the Soul comes somewhere in the middle of that imposing filmography. The film debuted in Germany in early 1974 before playing that year's Cannes Film Festival and making it to the U.S. later that year. Coincidentally, the film is a remake of Douglas Sirk's 1955 melodrama, All That Heaven Allows. Sirk was the subject of our previous marathon conversation, Adam. We reviewed Imitation of Life just a couple of weeks ago. Now, where All That Heaven Allows featured Jane Wyman's wealthy widow scandalizing her suburban community when she falls for Rock Hudson's young bohemian arborist, Fassbinder takes that central May-December romance and moves it to working-class Munich. And it does center on the middle-aged widow, Emmy, a cleaning woman, who becomes romantically involved with Ali, a much younger Moroccan immigrant who goes by Ali just because that's what all the Germans are going to call him anyway. Their early happiness is soon challenged by co-workers, neighbors, and family, including Emmy's grown children, all who disapprove of the relationship. Now, Adam, 
in relation to that Cirque reference, we've mentioned a couple of times how, especially for Marathon, movies and filmmakers, we like to check out Ephraim Katz's The Film Encyclopedia and get a little background. And so after watching Fear Eats the Soul, I did that for Fassbender. And imagine my surprise when I did see this. Some critics have compared his work with that of Francis Jean-Luc Godard, while others have also detected the influence of the American cinema of the 50s and particularly the films of Douglas Cirque. I'm going to admit, didn't immediately jump out to me while watching Fear Eats the Soul, Adam. Um, But once I read that, started to think about it and thought, okay, I can totally see what's happening here. How did the Cirque influence work for you? Well, in All That Heaven Allows, it's only (laughs) class that divides them. That's part of its elegance and its potency. Fassbender amplifies all of the oppressive forces that conspire against this couple without compromising either. We have now a character who's black, she's white, he's a foreigner, as you said, and that comes with its own host of mistreatments. It's set in Germany. We're not too far removed from Hitler and the Nazis. Hitler's invoked a couple of times. Yes, a in couple the film. times. I mean, the attempted genocide of the other, and we've got Ali here as an other. And it's also set in Munich right after the Munich Olympics massacre, that tragedy in 1972, which is also referenced. And Mm -hmm. that, of course, just heightened distrust and hatred for Arabs in Germany at the time. So you've got all of these elements swirling against these characters. And I love how we have Emmy and Ali somehow still just rushing into it and saying, we're happy and our happiness is all that should matter. And they seem almost oblivious at times Mm. to the reaction that their relationship is having on other people until they can no longer be oblivious to it until that confrontation is right there in their face. And I think in that way, and certainly Later in the film, this becomes even more apparent. The movie takes on an almost fairy tale like quality, despite being so entrenched in 1970s Munich and seeming to reflect the politics and the attitudes of the culture at the time. You have this element where the characters return from a vacation to Steinze, and it's exactly the catalyst for change in perception that she told him, that Emmy told him it would be. Watch, we'll go on vacation and we'll come back. And you don't really believe her because why would change? Why would these attitudes change? And it's almost as if Fassbender has the universe say, be careful what you wish for. Actually, yes, things could change, but these forces are too big and too oppressive. And even if they change somehow around you, you're going to change. There's there's a sense of pessimism and some doom around these characters. And yet there's also somehow, and I think this is really the magic of the film, and I do think it's a magical film. There is also this hope. There's this determinism. There's this drive. You You want this couple to continue to be happy. And despite everything I just expressed, you almost feel like they might be able to overcome it. Yeah, I want to get back to that, uh, the note about 
whether or not they're oblivious, because I think that's very interesting. But just quickly on the Cirque element for me, as I said, you know, the plot similarities to All That Heaven Allows, not on my mind at, at the time. But the thing that did come to mind once I saw that reference was the interiors and the way they're not as bold as so many of Cirque's interiors mm-hmm. in terms of color, but they're very composed and almost staged theatrical in a way that I also associate with with Cirque's work. Um, and, you know, we, we touched on that. Um, when we were talking about imitation of life, especially in some of those later domestic scenes where the house got fancier and more elaborate and so did the furniture and the interiors became more of a presence. Even though this is not as um, wealthy of a setting, I think you can see that even in the scene where Emmy is on those stairs, the stairwell with her coworkers where she's Mm -hmm. been cleaning and they take their lunch, just the placement of the railings and the use of the wall and even in her apartment which was very modest, the use of doorway frames and the a little bit more muted colors of her walls. That's where I definitely saw, beyond the potentially melodramatic narrative elements, mm-hmm. a, a combination with or a reference to Cirque. But really, I was so baffled in a good way by this film. As I mentioned earlier, my first Fassbender had no idea in terms of tone or filmmaking style of what I was getting into. And so you are grasping for those references. I do. When I'm Mm -hmm. a strong vision, a filmmaker with a strong vision, you kind of want to find your your resting points to wrap your mind around it. And I will admit, this has been one of the most destabilizing experiences in that way for me. I do not know what to make of Fassbinder after watching this film once and certainly allow that this could be in that masterpiece category. My mind just, you know, needs some more time with it to think about it a little bit more. Um, that Ephraim Katz entry mentioned Godard. I could see that the way he mm-hmm. is also deconstructing what a movie like this might look like. Like yeah. this is a different way that a melodrama could be presented. In fact, it's presented in a way that almost in some instances wants to keep us at such a distance that we won't have that emotional engagement. And so there was, it was a back and forth experience for me. I found it also to be incredibly dry. Other filmmakers that came to mind who would have been influenced by Fassbinder Sweden's Roy Anderson. We've talked Mm -hmm. about some of his films and honestly, Wes Anderson here in the U S the way their movies can be comically dry to an extent that puts off a lot of people. I'm thinking of the folks who say like, there's no emotion in a Wes Anderson movie and I experience the exact opposite, but I could understand that having now seen fear eats the soul because I could see someone saying to me, this is a deeply emotional movie that I wept at and I did not have that experience, even though I see the potential there. And for me, I didn't have that experience because of some of these formal choices. The way so many of these scenes, Adam, felt like um, almost rehearsals on a stage for a production. Not that they weren't finished, but there was something about them that wasn't quite ready for theatrical presentation on a screen, yet that's clearly what he wanted. And we can talk about this in terms of the performances, too. You know, I do think that... Mira, as Emmy, brings some naturalistic elements Mm -hmm. to her performance that is very different than what, here's another filmmaker who came to mind, Brassan would want from his performers who are very um, reserved and rigid. And that is what I think we get from El Hadi Ben Salam 
as Ali. I think he's very detached in his performance, which brings me all the way back to your comment about the obliviousness. I started to think if that was intentional because Emmy goes through this emotional, deeply emotional experience, and we see that on her face and Mm -hmm. in the performance. Ali um, goes through the same and more of the experience being the person who's being more directly oppressed, but he holds it within. And I almost thought if that was because he knew from the start, he was not oblivious. He knew what was coming, yet made a choice to pursue that happiness anyway, whereas I would say she was oblivious to how bad it could get. She knew it would be looked down upon, but she was more oblivious. And I wonder if that's echoed a little bit in his performance. That's why he's detached. He's kind of hardening himself for what is to come. Well, you mentioned Ali and the fact that that's probably a reference to just how others would refer to him. Almost that's the derog- name they'd use. They don't care in what his derogatory way. Right. And- the fact that he refers to himself that way in the third person often yeah. in the film, which is where we get the title from, right? It suggests a certain resignation, a certain powerlessness that he has accepted. How many times does he say something like, that's the way it is? That's just the way it is. Yeah. He doesn't question those things. The fact that their relationship, they're simply talking to each other and being together starts to at least chip away at that a little bit. And he's willing to take some actions to try to combat that powerlessness and that resignation. That is what, for me, gives the movie really some emotional heft, even if it's not there in the performance. You're right. He's someone who is more beaten down and weary, and you're not sure he ever can completely overcome it. But maybe somehow this relationship will do it. And the formal choices are what made me react so strongly emotionally to it. This isn't my first... Fastbender, I will note. Now it's been a hundred years, but back in film school, I remember watching and writing about Veronica Voss, which is about an actress in Germany, a once great actress. And that film very much is playing with Hollywood conventions and subverting some of classical Hollywood cinema's tropes the same way Godard's films do. I've seen Germany in Autumn, which is a movie that I don't know that you can really even call it a documentary, though it has elements of nonfiction to it. Very experimental. Fassbender as himself is a character in the film, which is why I knew watching some of these scenes, some guy seems so familiar to me and I yeah. couldn't place it and that I eventually did. Fassbender is the jerk son-in-law. I, I think film. I'd seen enough photos of him that I, I picked him out right away. Yeah. And yeah, yeah what what a like a little bitter, oh. weaselly performance. Oh, man. So, <laughs> so good in that way. Yeah. You're right. But this film isn't as flashy, certainly, or as burnished as a Cirque film. But the visual choices are really what linger with me. And you talked about how composed the shots are. And there is a lot of deep focus in these interior shots. The colors often are really vivid, especially in that club where they meet and when they dance. Yeah. But it's it's choices like they're often being in these frames. You have obstructed shots. You have you have characters that are just slightly in the frame or a table or something that's in the frame with this couple in the distance. And it it evokes this sense that the world is always watching and they always are often in this movie. They're they're oppressing, they're encroaching. They they can't quite have this space just to themselves. And what really struck me is the use of tableau shots here, where 
characters literally freeze in some moments. This is the Roy Anderson thing. The Roy for Anderson me, yeah. part. You're right. I think that's a good touchstone. Fassbender has these characters be motionless within the frame and it's theatrical, but it's not overly theatrical because the camera is at enough of a distance where we're not, we're not focused on them in close up or anything as they're pretending to stand still. It gives these frames a tableau sense, a sense of them being a painting, a really rich composition. And it also reinforces this idea to me, it did anyway, Josh, that these characters even if the world around them eventually could come along on this journey, it's as if they're all sort of stuck in time together and there never really can be any movement. The, the, the negative equilibrium will always return. It's always going to come back to its natural state. And that's where that hopelessness maybe comes in a little bit, but, but even just dancing together talking to each other, making the decision to be happy in light of all that, in light of all that oppression, which the visual system reinforces, I think is what's so touching about it. And I'll tell you what genuinely moved me in the filmmaking. Two, two camera shots that Fassbender uses and they mirror each other and they can't be accidents to me because they come at similar times. It's the shot where they have met. He's walked her home in the rain. They're standing downstairs in the apartment building that she lives in. She invites him up. She doesn't want this conversation, this encounter to end. And she says, why don't you come up for a while? I'll make us coffee and maybe the rain will stop. And Ali says, I'd like to, but she has a great line. People always say, but, and nothing ever changes. So they're, they're going to try to change it. They're going to fight back against this cosmic force. In this case, it's not even their oppressors. It's just the universe that seems to dictate that people like them don't have a choice but to be lonely. Really, that's it. Mm-hmm. And she invites him upstairs. He accepts finally after she says that. The camera starts to move and pull away towards the stairs before she's finished with that line. It's as if Fassbender is saying with the camera, come on. I'm going to nudge you just a little bit. You can do it. We can do it. We can keep this night going. You can come up the stairs. The camera urges us as viewers to accept that and to see it as a possibility before the characters even accept it as a possibility. And I love that. And it's mirrored later in the film, but in a way that's sadder. I think it's the scene where they're sitting outside at a restaurant and they're talking about their future together. And she really breaks down. Because the people who run the restaurant are just standing there judging them for whatever this transgression is. And the camera does the same thing. The camera, she says, let's go away. Let's go away on that vacation. Everything will be right when we come back. She talks about that movement. She talks about them being together. The camera moves before they do. The camera starts to pull away as if to say, let's go. Come on. Let's go. It's okay. Except if I remember the shot correctly, it ends and they don't, they don't get up. They do eventually go on the vacation, but it's as if it foreshadows that even though what she says will come to fruition, that doesn't mean their happiness is guaranteed. 
Yeah, I think both of those examples capture really well the the mystery that is this movie, mm-hmm. or at least my experience of it, is that it seems to be a film that in some of its formal choices and presentations has absolutely given up on, I'm glad you said loneliness, because I think that's really what this is about, but mm-hmm. it's given up on the idea of, the very idea of genuine human connection even being a possibility, right? So much of this movie, the oppression we see, um, the abuse we see would suggest that. And then there are other elements of the movie where it's aching for genuine human connection. And those examples you gave um, are great because they they hold that tension in one scene or one image. And maybe another one that, that I was thinking of when you were talking about tableaus, I don't know if this is exactly a tableau because the composition of the frame is not quite as complicated as it is in something you would think of as a tableau. But there are at least two instances where the camera holds on Emmy longer than mm-hmm. the scene needs, far longer than the scene needs. I know what you're, know what you're referring to. Yep. And I think one of them is actually, if I'm remembering correctly, one of them is when he has come upstairs and they're negotiating how this is going to work, right? It begins as coffee, then it goes to, well, you can stay over, I have an extra bedroom. And so they're kind of negotiating the logistics of this. And she's alone as he's in the bathroom, I think, and just leaning against a wall, deep in thought, to your point, almost completely still, if not completely still, and the camera sits with her. And then there is another one later, this is after they've had an argument and he gets up to leave I think they're at the table together and he's going back to the bar where they met. He needs to get out of there. And again, the camera just sits there with Mm -hmm. Emmy and watches her. And I found those to be the most moving moments, if we're using that term, the most intimate moments. Yes. And it's where that wall of remove gets dropped. The screen. So this is what is the mystery of Fassbender for me is building these walls And then dropping them on us, building these walls and then dropping them on us, which is, you know, how life can be. So it's how life is. I I get that. Um, It's just in such a uniquely presented way that makes him so we've been talking a lot about influences, but so wholly original um, and made it, you know, I meant to stabilize an experience in in a good way because it was just absolutely its own thing. I just wanted to note one thing, maybe for listeners who are listening to this and haven't watched the movie and thinking that. It seems outlandish that these two people would even go this far. Maybe they would talk at the bar. Maybe he would come in for coffee. Okay, maybe they'd sleep together. They're not getting married. You know, I love, here's a detail that I love that just made me get past all of this. Did you notice in the bar, when they first meet, he's come up to her, she's at a table alone, they start talking, and he asks her to dance. And she says yes. And she's been wearing this very drab raincoat. Right. Mm-hmm. And she just looks like a, a middle aged woman at the end of her work day trying to get out of the rain. Not glamorous at all. She says yes and stands up, takes off the raincoat, and she's wearing this brightly colored, boldly patterned dress underneath. And also her shoes throughout the movie, if you notice, they're often colorful and not very practical. You know, she's got mm-hmm. they're they're, you know, pumps or something, but they're stylish. And I just love that choice to tell us this is a woman who, even before she met Ali, even before she walked into that bar, was ready to blossom. Mm-hmm. This was a woman who had not succumbed to her loneliness. And for me, that kind of just made 
if you had any sort of qualms about, come on, this isn't believable. It's like, well, that costume design choice made it believable for me. I think that's a good observation. And you're right. For me, that aspect may also play in a little bit to that fairy tale like quality, because I think inevitably any viewer watching this is going to go through that exact same thought process you just said. You're going to say, okay, is this really going to lead to this and then to this? And the fact that the movie keeps going and it does go as far as it does, that's that's that rebellion. (laughs) That's that rebellion against life and the frailties of the people around them and the oppression of the people around them that that they inflict on this couple. I love how incisive it is and it shows how when things start to shift in terms of how others react to them, how that affects their relationship. And when she goes back to work and now the coworkers that were ignoring her before have changed and are talking to her like she's their friend again. Well, what's driving that though? What's driving that is, well, there's a new coworker and she's foreign too. She's foreign. She's from Yugoslavia, I think it is. And there's that heartbreaking part to it where they even say out loud, should we include her? Should we include her in this activity? Yeah, she can hear them. <laughs> and they decide they decide not to. Emmy doesn't say anything, but by not saying anything. Right. And now I'm, of course, thinking about Germany and in the Holocaust. I don't know whether or not Fassbinder intended that as a metaphor or not, but The fact that she doesn't say anything, it's a sin of omission. She doesn't push back, even as she's been the one who's been oppressed up until this point. But now someone's there to take her place. And that that face on that woman, that pleading smile at them that Fassbender holds on, and then he holds on her as she turns that smile into a frown, as she realizes that it's not going to be reciprocated. And then you also see the shift in their relationship in terms of her becoming the boss kind of master oppressor herself that everyone suggests derisively that she should be anyway, that this is what older German women do. They take in these younger foreign men and they're just a plaything. This isn't really about love. It's just about their own loneliness. A mirrored shot, Josh, that's really key for me as well in this part of the film is when she has those friends come over. Oh, very strange scene. And she reduces him to her property. Yeah. She turns him into an object where they literally feel his muscles. Yeah. They react to how young and virile he is, and they feel his muscles. Later in the film, when he is now seeking some solace and comfort in another woman, a woman who he had some flings with before, and she's a recurring character in the film— I don't think it's, again, an accident or unintentional that he showcases Ali standing in that living room and taking his shirt off and her coming up and feeling his arms and his chest almost the same as the women in Emmy's living room, except, of course, it's completely different. Now, now the feeling of his arms and the feeling of his chest is something that he's he's seeking and that he actually needs for for comfort. He's looking for something different than what he was getting there. Well, it also connects to the earlier scene. I think it's the first morning possibly he stays over or maybe it's, you know, it's early in their relationship at any rate and um she opens the bathroom door to tell him something while he's showering and pauses. Mm-hmm. 
and says just something you are beautiful i think yeah. something like that and in that at that point you feel, it's it's a sweet moment you feel like between yes. them and um it's a recognition i think which is bold of yeah this is a physical relationship like we're not going to downplay that either we're going to be bold enough to go there that moment registered to me as sweet and then the bizarre one with mm-hmm. her friends um is completely different so it's another one of those those gear shifts that the movie gives you Ali, Fear Eats the Soul is available on the Criterion channel and other VOD platforms. Next up in the Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon, we have Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror. For the complete marathon lineup, visit filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, that's our show. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Filmspotting and I'm at Larson on Film. The current film spotting poll has us looking ahead to Bo is Afraid, the latest from director Ari Aster. We want to know, what is your favorite Aster film, Hereditary or Midsommar? For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For $5 a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. You get a weekly newsletter and you get monthly bonus shows, our April bonus. We're planning to include some spoiler talk about Bo is Afraid, maybe some other recent titles if they deem worthy of consideration, and a little Ask Us Anything. Go to filmspotting.net. There's a link right there on the main page, or you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You have a question you'd like us to dive into, something we haven't talked about on the show before. Great. Send it our way. We'll discuss it in that bonus content. As a family member, you have the option of getting access to the entire Film Spotting Archive. Here's a few you might seek out in relation to this episode. Going back to my flummoxing setup for how to (laughs) blow up a pipeline, the movies that influenced director Daniel Goldhaber, we did our top five Soderbergh scenes back on episode 364. We talked about Robert Brisson's A Man Escaped as part of our 2012 Brisson Marathon. That's episode 386. We did a Sacred Cow review of Reservoir Dogs and our top five films of 1992 on episode 536. And on episode 621, we did a blind spotting review of Gilo Ponte Corvo's The Battle of Algiers, and we shared our top five political resistance movies. All that at filmspottingfamily.com. In wide release, you can see Mafia Mama, starring Tony Collette as a suburban woman who inherits her grandfather's mafia empire, directed by Catherine Hardwick. The Pope's Exorcist is also out, an idea once expressed apparently has to be manifested. You can also see Renfield with Nicolas Cage as Dracula and Nicholas Holt as his lackey. There's also a new film from Japanese animator Makoto Shinkai, who did Weathering With You and Your Name. It's called Suzume. Sweetwater is out. That's a biopic about Nat Sweetwater Clifton, the first black basketball player to join the NBA. That includes an eclectic supporting cast, Richard Dreyfuss, Eric Roberts, Kevin Pollack, among those ensemble members. In limited release, you can see Kelly Reichert's showing up. It's expanding to more theaters, Josh. I know you did review it favorably on Larson on Film. Michael Phillips and I talked about it pretty glowingly last week. Definitely recommended here on Film Spotting. Yeah, good to see that getting to more theaters. Next week, we are going to be doing our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances in anticipation of Bo is Afraid. And we're also going to reconsider Spike Jones's Her in the Age of AI. Believe it or not, Her is 10 years old. 
Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore because I am Film Spotting Madness Champion. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.